You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. Turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 16 today. We're going to go back to this. So if you want to keep your Bible open there, that, that would be fine, or put a little bookmark in there. It's the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke. And uh, we're in chapter 16. We're going to read just part of the story, because it's actually quite a long parable of the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The, and they both die, and they both go off to Hades, and then one of them goes to Abraham's side, and there's this conversation that happens. And so take a look at it. This is a parable of Jesus, a story of Jesus about what he is going to say. So it's Luke 16, uh, verse 19. Thank you. Okay, it says this. So it's Jesus' words. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. This is an ancient context of he was very rich. Um, And he lived in luxury every day. And at his gate there was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores and longing to eat the food that, that fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs came and licked his sores. Everybody say, dude, I'm eating. <laughs> it's Jesus speaking though, so uh, i got to read it. Verse 22 says this, The time came when the beggar died, and the angels ca- carried him off to Abraham's side. Other versions say Abraham's bosom. We'll talk about that in a little while. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, it's a Greek word there, in Hades, this underworld place, in Hades, he was tormented and he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus at his side. So he called out to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. Like I imagine like the, uh, the great, uh, what's that thing called? Grand Canyon. <laughs> Anyways, the great chasm is like this Grand Canyon between you and us so that those who want to go from here, uh, you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so that's this portrayal of the the afterlife, as Jesus says in this parable. But today we'll get to talking about, is this just a parable? Is this how it will really be? That's kind of the topic for today's lesson in the Mill Sunday School, the afterlife. So before we go any further, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to be here that we might learn from his word this morning. So God, we do thank you. We recognize your presence is here, is inside of us. God, would you teach us what you want us to know? Would you open us up to, to receive truth, to receive um, the truth about what will happen after life, that, that God, we can hope in you, we can trust in you, Jesus, for our redemption here on earth and in heaven. So God, we praise you. We do worship you this morning. We thank you so much. And everybody said, Amen. Um, so we're talking about the afterlife, and it's one of those topics, like so many topics, that you, the more you study, the more you research, the more you find out that you really don't know as much as maybe you once thought. Has anyone ever experienced that? Like you're studying, you're learning along, it's like, I learned all this stuff, and now I realize that I actually am more confused now, having studied it, <laughs> than, than if I didn't study it. And I think that's very true in, in life, in many topics sometimes. As many of you know, I love school. Anybody else love school and learning? Me too. We're nerds. That's a good thing. Um, and, and so I, I, I went to high school. I loved high school. I was like, the high school is awesome. Let's take some AP classes and then go to college. And I loved college and learning. It's like, college is so awesome. I went to get my master's degree. got my master's in divinity. I was like, man, this is so much fun. I love school. And so I went right from master's to my doctorate. Got my doctorate. And this is a picture of me getting hooded as a, a doctor. Dr. Jack Hayford, Dr. Ulmer, uh, uh, hooding me. That's when you get the little scarf necklace thing. Anyways, whatever it is, it's a hood. Uh, so that's me getting hooded. And I think one of the coolest things about getting degrees and, and getting smarter, having the pieces of paper to prove that you've studied, I think, my opinion, one of the coolest things is having confidence that when someone asks you something you don't know, you, you have like the piece of paper that says you're smart, so you don't have to pretend like you're smart, so you don't have to make up stuff. So it's like, 
If someone asks me a question now, I, I've said, after becoming a, and maybe this is, this is just me talking right now, but after getting my doctorate, which is two summers ago, I've said, I've had more, like when people ask me a question that I don't know, I've had more confidence to say, I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even know where to start looking for the answer to your question. And I just look at them smiling, and they're like, man, I thought you were a doctor. And it's like, yeah, I know. It's crazy, huh? It's just... Like the confidence that you have to say you don't know something. And, and I, th- I don't think you need a degree to do that. I think you just need to let go of some of your pride to be able to do that. So what I'm talking about is more personal than anything else. But like I remember in high school, it was me and two other dudes riding in this car. And none of the dudes had their had our licenses yet. Uh, a girl was driving. It was her car. We were on our way to somewhere. We were kind of in a hurry. But the car broke down. And it was raining outside. They're like, man, what do we do? What we should have done was to go to a phone, because this is way back in the, the day when there was no cell phones. What we should have done is like go find a phone, call someone to come, either come get us or a tow truck. That's what we should have done. But instead, for the, better ha- for the better part of almost two hours, the three dudes were like looking under the hood. We had n- none of us owned a car, had anything. Like, we just didn't know anything about the car. But like we're, we're, we're men, we're maybe trying to impress the girl. So for the better part of almost two hours, we're like trying to like unplug things and plug things back in. It's like, oh, the headlight is loose here. That, that, there's your problem. <laughs> And it's like we couldn't, you know, we just wasted, like, trying, pretending like we knew. Guys, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you do that? Maybe it's, maybe it's just more of a guy thing. You just, like, want to pretend like you know, or you start making stuff up so that people won't think that you don't know. Um, and so th- this month's topic of the afterlife, I'm going to be very quick. When I don't know something, or when, we don't, when the Bible's kind of silent on a particular issue about the afterlife and what's going to happen, the Mill Sunday School, we in here are kind of going to be silent and say, you know what, we're going to be quick to say we don't know. We're going to be slow to make stuff up. Remember, like last week I gave a story about how I made up like bird heaven to these little girls that witnessed a bird being killed. Do you remember that last week? If you were here, it was, it was an awesome story. <laughs> but, um, and so you can get to this point where like, okay, we're studying the afterlife. Let's, and, and so we're learning more, but we realize that we learn less. And so you could go to this other extreme where you think, Oh, well, you know, if all I learn is I find out I know less, let's just stop studying. Let's just, you know, forget about it. Let's not study it at all. And that's another, the other extreme that I don't believe we should go there because it's like, it's, it's as if, um, and I made up a little scenario. It's uh, another pastor made it up. I'm just kind of repeating it. It's like, imagine you met someone going to Mars. And so here's a little Mars station in the future and so you meet this person from NASA, and they're like, yeah, I'm going to Mars for the next 10 years of my life. And it's like, oh, sweet, when do you leave? And they're like, oh, I'll leave in a few months. It's like, oh, wow, you must have prepared. You must know everything there is to know about Mars. What's Mars going to be like? And they're like, I don't know. Get there. I find out when I get there, I guess. He was like, what do you mean you don't know? He was like, yeah, I just don't know. There's all these manuals and books we were supposed to read, but they were so long and boring. I don't want to read any of that. I just want to go. It's like, dude, what is wrong with you? Like, you, your whole team, maybe you yourself, can, there could be consequences to not being prepared for this 10-year trip to Mars. And so I think of the same way, like, a 10-year trip to Mars is potentially nothing compared to eternity or, or the, you know, the, or the afterlife, the trip that we're going to take when we die. And so to be, I think to be two things, to be ignorant and arrogant about your, your unknowingness is another extreme that we don't want to go to. I imagine someone that's like, yeah, me and, me and the man upstairs, we like this. You know, we're, we're cool. He's going to give me the, the streets of gold thing, and, you know, we got this deal worked out. It's like, no, do you even have any idea what you're talking about? You're arrogant, and you're, you're, you're not, you don't even know what you're talking about. And so that's one extreme. Uh, the other extreme is to just make up stuff and to pretend like you know. The Mill Sunday School, Afterlife, we're going to find the balance. Doesn't that sound like fun? We're not going to make stuff up, and we're not going to be arrogant about what we don't know. <laughs> Lighten up, everybody. This is a fun place to be, right? <laughs> All right, just making sure we're cool. So if you are new to the Mill Sunday School, uh, welcome. We do have these cards on the tables. It says, Get School. That's our old logo. And uh, you can fill one of these out, bring it to the people as you leave. They'll give you a CD. <clears throat> the CD is some worship music of our main meeting, or our main college and 20-somethings ministry, which is on Friday night. We do worship there at that service, and so they'll give you that. Uh, we'd love to have your information, put you on our email list, and uh, get to know you. Uh, what else? 
Oh, the Millfall Retreat. These should be on your tables as well. Anybody going to the Millfall Retreat this year? Yep, I see that hand. I see it. Um, the Millfall Retreat is really cool. This year, it's, it's the info's on the back here, but it's October 22nd through the 24th. And the price does go up if you wait to register later. So it behooves you to register earlier. And if you haven't been to the Millfall Retreat, that's the best scenario because... You, you, maybe you're, you're new to the mill or to the mill Sunday school. The mill fall retreat was like an injection of relationships and awesomeness. You experience the mill and each other and find community, and it's really cool. If you haven't been, ask someone that has. They'll tell you it's awesome. And I believe you could register for the fall retreat either online or at the back booth as you leave as well. So those are your announcements. Before we get into today's lesson, I want to review from last week, because we covered a lot last week, and if you were here, uh, th- this will be review. If you were not here, it's going to seem like we're just like going a million miles per hour and throwing stuff at you, and that's exactly what I want to happen, so that you'll listen to the podcast and be excited to uh, go back and listen, because we're building on last week's lesson, and we started off last week by saying there's uh, some goals we have at the Mill Sunday School. The month's goals, which I kind of hinted at already, is we're going to try to not make up stuff. Try to not make stuff up when it comes to the afterlife. And, and you'd be surprised how easy it is to make up stuff when it comes to the afterlife. That you're like, when, when maybe someone in your life will say something like, yeah, well, I hope that in heaven, you know, blank. And maybe someone has ever told you that and, and filled in the blank. And you think, oh, that's what they think about heaven. Maybe that's true. But they're just you know, saying that they hope in something. They're not saying this is how it is. Or when someone gives an analogy for heaven or hell, and, and it's like, that's not really how it is. That's just an analogy. Um, one of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, anybody like C.S. Lewis? He's a pretty cool dude. Anybody familiar with uh, The Great Divorce? One of his books, it's more of a story format. And in the story, he, he basically it starts off at a bus station. It's kind of weird kind of a weird beginning, but then a bus pulls up and proceeds to take him to like heaven and hell and purgatory. It's a pretty cool story. Um, and in this story, at the, excuse me, and to the preface of this story, because he goes on to explain what heaven's like, hell's like, purgatory, etc., he begins his preface in this book, which I've used as the sweet quote of the day. So on your, if you got one of these when you came in, on the back is a quote by C.S. Lewis. And so this is the preface to his book, The Great Divorce, And he says, the last thing I wish is to arouse uh, factual curiosities about the details of the afterlife. So here he is writing a book about the afterlife, but it's more of a moral story. And he wants to give insights into life from this story of the afterlife. He says, the the last thing I want to do is to say, yeah, heaven and hell, purgatory, whatever, they're going to be like this. It's like, no, I'm writing an analogy so that we can learn lessons about spirituality and about life. And so I think that's a really good introduction, a really good preface to that book, because so many people could say, you know, C.S. Lewis, he believes, blank. You know, and you read The Great Divorce, and you fill in some of the details. Like, yeah, the water's going to be really hard, and you could stand on it because your body isn't formed. It's like, yeah, C.S. Lewis, he's not saying that that's what heaven's going to be like. He's giving an analogy. So we're going to be clear in the middle Sunday School. We're not going to make stuff up, uh, leading right to number two, which is we're going to stick to what the Bible teaches about the afterlife. That's the goal in here this month. Uh, we're going to stick to what the Bible says. <clears throat> not going to make stuff up. And then last week we talked about misconceptions. And I, I listed three of them. If you're taking notes, there's three misconceptions that we talked about last week. Um, and they're, they're, they're very profound. They're very, uh, <clears throat> like many of us have these misconceptions. The first one was that death is a nice thing. And we talked about how the, the biblical perspective of death is that it's not a nice thing. It's this thing that, that happened. We, we have to die now because sin entered into the world. And Jesus has to go conquer death. And so it's like we could say nice things about death. Like, you know, someone just dies. Let's say grandma dies and she loves sewing. It's like, well, grandma just died. You know, she loves sewing. So I imagine in heaven there's like this endless, you know, crocheting that needs to happen so grandma's up there crocheting what a nice thing it's like well well you know just first of all you're just making stuff up to make us feel better but second of all like death itself that's not a nice thing like death needs to be conquered we are sad when we are at funerals we cannot put the fun into funeral because death 
isn't this nice thing. It's a sad thing that happens. No one needs to, you're, you're saddened by death because that's not the way it's supposed to be because we're, we're built for eternal life. But, but our hope is in that Jesus has conquered death. More about that to come. But the, the next, the number two misconception that we did talk about last week, and this one's a huge one that we as American Christians have that we'll, we'll talk about as soon as you die, you know, snap your finger, you either go straight to heaven or straight to hell for all of eternity. And to that, it's like, well, there seems to be like there's more going on between death and this final being, this final resting place, this final resurrected body that we get. And so it doesn't seem from the context of Scripture that, you know, death happens and you're either in heaven or hell and, and you're for there for all of eternity. It seems like there's more happenings after death. And so this is a huge misconception, but we'll spend actually today talking about, okay, if that's actually true, then what happens in this uh, intermittent or intermediate stage between death and this final place? So we'll get, we'll get to talking about that. Uh, and then misconception number three from last week is that this, there's this strict separation between body and soul, so much so that it's like, oh, who cares about your body? It's just your soul that goes off to heaven, and, and that's it, and you're there forever. It's like, well, no, there's, there's a lot more to be said in the context of the New Testament about the resurrection of the body, that your mortal body will be made immortal, that you'll receive this body. And, and so there's, there's more to it than just you die, snap your fingers, your soul is even, either in heaven or hell for all of eternity. That would be kind of a misconception, which we'll continue to talk about all this month. And then if you're in here and you're like, man, I, I, that's what I thought would happen. You know, where's this coming from? Is Joe teaching heresy? Well, no, I'm not. I'm actually agreeing with the, the context of Scripture. I'm agreeing with the early church. I'm agreeing with the early creeds. And we put up last week these creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, that says we look forward for the, for the resurrection of the dead and for the life of the world to come. It's like that's what the early church, when they were putting together their creeds about what do we believe about the afterlife? Do we believe it's just a snap of the finger, then heaven or hell for all of eternity? Like, no, let's be in line with what the New Testament says. And so often it's, we believe in the resurrection. As Christ was resurrected, we will be resurrected as our final place. Um, I thought I would add to last week and add this. This comes from the common, excuse me, the book of common prayer. And it, it, it is kind of an old Anglican, this book of prayers and, and liturgy of the church. And this is the prayer to be, to be said at the burial of a dead Christian. The Christian dies, you would read this prayer. And I thought I would read it because this is very, it's connecting back with the early church. It's connecting back with this idea of, of the resurrection. And it says this, so if someone has just died, you're, you're laying them in the tomb, you, pr- you would pray this prayer. We therefore commit this body to the earth, to be turned into corruption, looking forward for the resurrection of the body when the earth shall give up her dead and the life of the world to come through the Lord Jesus Christ, who at his coming shall change our vile body, like our mortal body, uh, that, that it may be like his glorious body, according to the mighty working whereby he is able to subdue all things unto himself. So that's the, that's the Christian perspective of we're burying a dead body, but that body, their life will, this body will be raised to the dead. And it's like, this body will be corrupted and it will rot and the bones will eventually even go away. But at some day, Jesus is going to resurrect this, this body into immortality, into a spiritual body. And that's what we look forward to. And so, so many of you after the Mill Sunday School, I probably think of like three of you that were like, hey man, this is all new stuff to me. This is, this is new, I, I, I'm liking where this is going, but could you give me a book recommendation? Like, what, what would you recommend as a book to read more about this? And so I would recommend uh, this book. It's called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And it's a book, uh, N.T. Wright is this dude. Has, has anyone familiar with this book, Surprised by Hope? A few hands. Um, it's kind of, N.T. Wright is this theologian, of like theologians. He's like an Oxford, Cambridge, big time theologian. Then usually guys like that usually just like stay in their Cambridge, awkward corners and they just write just for the other people that are also going to Harvard and Cambridge and etc. But this guy, N.T. Wright, he really takes theology, the deep theological, you know, the big words, the hard stuff, and he writes for us, 
you and me, people um, that haven't studied in Oxford our whole life. And this specific book, Surprised by Hope, um, is, uh, is about rethinking heaven, the resurrection, and the mission of the church. And in it, he, he writes about many of the things that we are talking about here in the Mill Sunday School. And uh, this, is the, this is the writer, N.T. Wright is the writer, kind of that's, that's shaping many people's thoughts in this area. For example, uh, Aaron Stern, Glenn Packiam, uh, Jordan Haley, who is teaching next week, uh, David Grothy, Daniel Grothy, they're, they're reading these, these books by N.T. Wright as a theologian. So if you just mention N.T. Wright to any of the people I just mentioned, like when you see Aaron Stern next, say, hey, so, so you like N.T. Wright? He'll probably just like talk your ear off because he's been reading these books and it's forming his theology. And so with that, so if, if you're interested in a book recommendation, it's a great book. Um, and so it's N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope. So that's enough for review that was a long review. It took quite a while to just review. So let's, let's talk about it. Let's do a, a quick, a very quick discussion. So jump right into this discussion. It's, it's almost a taboo subject amongst Christians to talk about. But if we really do believe that we'll die, and then there's, there's this waiting before the resurrection of our body, then what happens? The question is, uh, where do we go? And I put that in quotations I don't want you to get caught up in that lingo. Like it may not be a place that we go. It may more of be a thing that we experience. But where do we go? Quotation marks. In between death and our resurrection. And so I want you to talk about that at your table. It's, it's kind of a, we don't talk about it too much as Christians. Um, but let's talk about it. Let's, let's be open and, and just say, you know, I, I think this or I think that. And, and kind of go around at your table or in the back. Just kind of form small groups and say, okay, where do we go between death and and our resurrection. Cool? Cool. All right. So talk about it in, in groups. Ready, get set, go. I want to go over, many of you probably just entered in conversations where you talked about one or many uh, of these different things in your notes. If, if you got the notes and you came in, I always like to follow along. We're going to talk about five intermediate states. And, and so I'm going to list these in a moment. But, um, but that, that is what we're talking about, an intermediate state. This time Time, I put in quotation marks, because some of you maybe even, how many of you brought up the idea that maybe we don't experience time? Anyone bring that up? A few hands. Um, so I, I put time, what, what happens in this time, air quotations, in between death and this final resurrection? And it seems from the context of the New Testament that, that that is really what we need to think about it as, as an intermediate state between death and this final place. And, and Brady Boyd, a few years ago, gave an analogy um, and I want to make sure that this isn't an analogy because this isn't this is what heaven and hell and intermediate states will be like. Now this is an analogy that kind of gets the pieces of that correct. And in his analogy, he says that when you die, you go to kind of a nice hotel, <laughs> and then when, your final place is this like billion dollar house, a, a mansion. And that, this is an analogy. This isn't. Uh, what it will be like. This is an analogy. Once again, I'll say that a couple times because we don't want to make stuff up in here and say that it will be like this or that. We want to say it could be like this. And we're, we're emphasizing the word like. We're using an analogy just to be super clear. Um, and so Brady would say, you know, you're on a trip to your final destination. Your final destination is this mansion, this end house that you were going to get. And along the way, you, you'll stay somewhere like a hotel. It's meant to be stayed in for just a, a period of time, a really nice hotel. So here's a picture of a really nice hotel. That's the Broadmoor. Anybody ever been to the Broadmoor? It's really sweet. That, and then that, that girl down at the bottom, just to embarrass her, that's Megan Flowers. Where's she at? There she is. Hi, Megan. Uh, Patrick and Megan just got married three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, and they went on their honeymoon to, to, to the Broadmoor. So, oh, isn't that precious? So Patrick's taking the picture. She's on a bike, waving. Anyways, that's nice. That's nice. So that, that's the Broadmoor. So if you die, you go to this really nice 
hotel. And that gets this picture right that we'll get to later, that for believers, there is a nice place to go to. And we'll talk more about that later. But that's not our final place. And so Brady, once again, in this analogy, this isn't what heaven and hell, purgatory, the intermediate state will be. But in this analogy, your final place will be this this mansion. Here's a really big mansion I found in a picture of it, at least in somewhere in Hollywood. It's like this awesome mansion, but along the way, you stayed somewhere very nice. So that that's the idea. So what is this hotel that you're staying at? What The, the analogy, when you die, you're staying at this hotel. What are the different views? And so here's inter, intermediate states, list of places. And so if you want to follow along, you could list all these one through five, and then we'll go back and talk about each one. But number one, we're going to talk about purgatory today. Number two, we're going to talk about soul sleep. Number three, we're going to talk about uh, these two words. One's Greek, one's Hebrew, Sheol and Hades. Uh, number four, we're just going to talk about heaven. Like, what about if we call this place that we go to heaven, what will it be like? Uh, and then finally, uh, the fifth one, the fifth and last, paradise. And, and I, I'm going to conclude, I, I left that one last because I really think that's one of the best words to be used to describe this intermediate state. So those are the five, if you're writing them down, purgatory, soul sleep, Sheol or Hades, and then heaven, and then number five, paradise. And we'll go back through and talk about each one of these. So if you didn't get them, uh, we'll go back. So number one is purgatory. And purgatory um, is, is, is a doctrine. I don't know of any other denomination. I don't, I don't, the Western church, as far as like Orthodox church, they do not believe in purgatory. Purgatory is, is really this Catholic perception of what happens after life. Um, that you go to an intermediate state state of purgatory. And the word purgatory refers, the, the Latin is this idea of purging. And so this picture, I don't know if you could see it in full detail, but there's souls at the bottom kind of like on fire. Their, their, their sins are being purged, and an angel at the end of their purging, at the end of the punishment of their the sins that they've committed, this angel is lifting them up out of purgatory into a final place. And, and we as Protestants are often so quick to say, oh, purgatory, that's a Catholic doctrine, that's ridiculous, that's silly, that's, that's Catholic stuff, that's not our stuff. But to give, you know, there's this, this phrase that I'm trying to bring back called, uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Have you heard that? It's like this really funny image in my head. It's like, whoosh. anyway, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing I think about up here. Um, so uh, where was I? Where was I going with that? Oh, yeah. Purgatory. So we as Protestant Christians like to just say, oh, purgatory, that's, that's silly, that's a Catholic thing, that's not our thing. But the thing, if we're to give the, the theology of purgatory some credit, the thing that purgatory does get right is, is an intermediate state. Because we as American Christians are so quick to say, we die, snap our fingers, we either go to heaven or hell for all of eternity, and that's, that's that. But at least the Catholics have this, this purgatory where it's like, okay, at least they're, this, they're somewhere right along this thinking that you know, when you die, there is an intermediate state. So to give purgatory some credit, it's like at least that's right that, that there's an intermediate state. But what I don't like about purgatory is, is when you get into defining like what exactly happens there. And so this entry is from the, the Catholic Encyclopedia founded online, where let the Catholics to describe what purgatory is. And so, to a Catholic, said that purgatory is a place or condition of temporal, meaning a short time, uh, punishment for those who departed this life in God's grace. And I'll pause there and say, so that means that the, the purgatory is for Christians, for believers who are in Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so, people... And according to the Catholic doctrine, you would die if you were in Jesus, you believed in him for your, your, the salvation of your sins, you would go to purgatory and are uh, not entirely free from uh, venal faults, that means like sinful faults, or have not fully paid the price for the satisfaction due to their transgressions, which lots of big words here, theological words here, but it's basically this idea that if, so you, you live your Christian life, and when you die, you're still held accountable for your sins. And so in, in Catholic doctrine, you need to be purged of those sins before your final resting place. But I have a lot of 
problems with that theology, because, and as well as many other Protestants do as well, because we would say, wait just a minute. Didn't Jesus pay for your sins fully and entirely? Didn't he conquer death? Why do you need to, to, to die and then to do some more suffering on this earth, suffering in an intermediate state before you're raised? Didn't Jesus fully die for your sins? And so Protestants would continually say, no, we don't believe in a purgatory. And purgatory, by the way, is, it isn't, like if you look at Catholic Church and the Catholic doctrine, purgatory is a relatively new, like a Middle Ages uh, thing that came about as people began to talk about, you know, the intermediate state that, oh, maybe we need to purge our sins. Like, Grandma just died. She was a Christian. She lived her whole life in Christ. But sometimes, Grandma cussed like a sailor. Grandma had a potty mouth. And so Grandma will, will, before she goes to heaven, she needs to be purged of her potty mouth. And so she needs to suffer a little bit. It's like, wait a minute. You know, as a, as a, Christ, as a Protestant Christian, I would say, didn't Jesus Christ die for sins, period? Didn't he die for all sins, including you know, all of our sins, including Grandma's potty mouth? Why does Grandma have to be purged of her sins? That's what Jesus did. Jesus conquered death. So, um, and purgatory has a lot of baggage with it as well. Uh, we would say, as Protestants, we would look at purgatory and say, yeah, what, what's the whole deal with, you know, Grandma just died, but we could pray for Grandma's time to be lessened in purgatory? Like, Where's that in the Bible? Or praying to saints to help grandma purge her sins faster? Like, man, where's that in the Bible? Or just other things like that. So we, as Protestant Christians, say, you know, we don't believe in purgatory, this purging of sins, this place where you have to suffer some more before you get resurrected. But at least, to give Catholics credit, at least they have this idea of this intermediate stage. So you see, hopefully I'm giving, I'm not just, smashing and bashing catholic theology but i'm saying at least they, a part of it is right but a part of it we as protestants would would disagree with pretty pretty strongly make sense so that that's purgatory the next one on the list is soul sleep and soul sleep is this idea maybe some of you talked about this at your tables when we were discussing this idea that you enter into a rest so much so that some people would say that from the context of scripture they, they see this as, you know, you just fall asleep and time passes. And well, like when you're asleep, you don't know how much time has passed. You go to sleep and you wake up rested. And, and so much so that, that an intermediate stage kind of doesn't even exist because you die, you fall asleep, you don't experience that time, time, quotation marks, as time. And so you just wake up in heaven or hell. And, and that's what happens in the intermediate stage. You die and you just fall asleep. Big proponents of this are Seventh-day Adventists. Jehovah's Witnesses believe in soul sleep. Uh, Martin Luther believed in soul sleep. In fact, Martin Luther, I'll uh, see this next slide, shows a little picture of, isn't that nice, a little graveyard, people sleeping under there. Um, but uh, Martin Luther, <laughs> sorry, said this, uh, comparing, the, comparing the soul sleep to the sleep of a tired man after a day's work whose soul sleeps but is not awake. And so Martin Luther was this proponent of you die and you just fall asleep. You don't experience any time. You don't do anything. You're just chilling. You're just taking a long, very long nap, potentially for thousands of years until Christ comes back and the dead are raised. And, and so, so many Christians, to, to the credit of soul sleep, b- believe in soul sleep. They say, yeah, there's, there's context of Scripture where, where this idea of, you know, it talks about those who have fallen asleep and it's this analogy for those that have died. We, Paul refers to them, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. And there's this Old Testament idea of, you know, like David dies. The, the exact context is 1 Kings 2.10. David, it says that David dies and then he rests or he sleeps with his fathers. Which you need to be careful how you word that. But anyway, sorry. That's really bad. I apologize. That's the kind of thing that gets me kicked out of Sunday school. It's like, man, Joe is just... Anyways, uh, so David falls asleep. He rests with his fathers until a later time. And so that's what soul sleep is. But what about... So soul sleep is this idea that you just fall asleep. You don't experience anything until the resurrection. But what about all the references to the happenings after death, but before the resurrection? 
seems like you read the book of Revelation, excuse me, read the book of Revelation, you see things going on, people dying, and then they're waiting for, you know, they're, they're like if you die and you're a martyr for Jesus Christ, you're waiting for your blood to be avenged. Revelation chapter 6, the, the, the saints are underneath the altar saying, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood, to you, you destroy our enemies. They're, they're watching things, the people are doing things. It doesn't seem like they're just asleep for all of eternity doing nothing. Something's going on. And so soul sleep gets something right and says, oh, there's, there's a rest. You enter into a rest. And that is true because there's other passages that say, talk about this rest in between death and resurrection. But then what about, you know, what about the, the happenings after death that are so clear in the Bible? And so I think soul sleep has part of it right, but not all of it right. So let's keep going. Then the next one is Sheol and Hades. Sheol is the Hebrew word. Hades is the Greek word for afterlife, for the place of death. And these two words have a lot of baggage, especially probably the Hades word, because that in the Greek mythology, Hades was like this, you know, this river that Hades, this guy, took you across, and it was like the afterlife world of different levels and stuff. So it has lots of baggage with it. But it is words used in Scripture. Sheol is an Old Testament word, a Hebrew word used for, for the grave. Like, if you look at um, Psalm 16, Psalm 16, verse 10 says, You will not be abandoned. The NIV translates it. You will not be abandoned to the grave. When you die, you won't be abandoned to the grave. You won't just be abandoned. God won't give up on you. And that word for grave there is Sheol. You won't be abandoned to Sheol. God will be with you. And then the New Testament actually quotes that scripture, the, the, the Psalms passage in Acts. Peter quotes it in chapter 2 of Acts and says, uh, you, God will not abandon you to Hades. He, you, he uses the word, instead of Sheol, he uses the Greek word Hades. So kind of talking about these two words, this idea that the afterlife is the underworld. Both of these words have this idea of uh, being buried and in the ground, the underworld. And Jesus uses the word Hades. In, in the New Testament, we already read this passage, Luke 16, where he says, in, in Hades, there was the rich man suffering. And there, there's a picture of it, an artist's representation of the rich man suffering down at the bottom left there. And then this chasm, and Lazarus, this beggar, at the side of Abraham, and, and so they're in the same place, Hades, but there's this chasm, the Grand Canyon kind of thing in my mind at least, but let's not make up stuff, this, this isn't an, an analogy, um, of like you're, at, you're with Abraham, and sometimes it's just referred to as Abraham's bosom, which is extremely confusing because it's like, wait, you're in Abraham's bosom? What does that even mean? Like he swallowed you and you're like caught in his throat? Like... What does that mean? It just means you're at his side. You're with him. You're like, you know, you're all reclining and he's like chilling out. You're, oh, you're with Abraham. You're, you're near him is this idea. And Abraham is, is on the good side of Sheol, Hades. And like, it seems as though there's a chasm and this, this rich guy is suffering in another portion or side of Hades. And, and so that's this idea of Hades and Sheol, this, this intermediate state of, of what's happening. And it has so much baggage with it of, of the cultural context of the Greek and the, the Jewish way of thinking about the afterlife. And it, it comes up in my mind that even this whole thing, like this Luke 16, is a parable. And it seems like the, the point of the parable is to take care of poor people here on earth because, you know, in the afterlife, it could be that, you know, you will be suffering and, and the, the poor person will be, uh, you know, not suffering. Because it doesn't say, just to throw in some more confusion, because I know you love to be confused, um, there, there's nothing in this, reread it if you want. Luke 16, it, there's just a poor man and a rich man. And it doesn't say the rich man's a bad guy, and it doesn't say the poor man is a good guy. It doesn't say that Lazarus, this poor guy, accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Lord and Savior, and then gets to be at Abraham's side. It seems as though this is just a parable for treating people good so that in the afterlife there's this upside down kingdom where potentially you that had all these good things you you might be suffering but this beggar uh he might have better things in the afterlife and so we can't take 
So, main point. We can't take too much theology of the afterlife from this one parable because it is, in fact, an analogy. It is, in fact, a parable. And we're not sure how much is literal or not literal. But whatever that is, we do know things about the afterlife. Let's continue talking. The next one is heaven. So if you refer to heaven as, okay, when you die, you go straight to heaven. Okay, that's fine. If you're sitting in a funeral and, and, the, and someone's teaching, it's like, you know, grandma, she loved Jesus Christ. She helped out at church. She loved to sew. And she, she believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And she now sits in heaven. I would not lean over and say, you know, heaven isn't our final place. There's an intermediate step, you know, between death and, you know, the resurrection. So <laughs> I wouldn't do that because heaven could just be this term used to say that's where you're at. You're in heaven, but as when you, you just have to realize that in the context of Scripture, heaven, has, heaven is this place where it's like, okay, there's an intermediate step stage, and then there's like this new heaven and new earth and resurrected body, this, this you know, final destination that you go to. And when someone dies, they're not there yet. There's more to come after death. So does that make sense? So if you use this idea of heaven, you imagine like the clouds and the, you know, that's where, that's where so-and-so is now because they just died. We do have to realize that if, you, if you're calling it heaven, that's fine. That's, that is a word that used in Scripture even. But there's more to come. There's a new heaven. There's a new earth. There's a resurrection that we are waiting for. And so we, if you're talking about heaven, someone just died, that's fine. But I think the best term is this last term, paradise. And paradise is actually the word used. So this is the last and final word that we're going to talk about today in this intermediate stage. Because this is the exact word that Jesus used when he was dying. And there was two thieves next to him. One was cursing Jesus. And the other one said, hey man, leave him alone. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 42, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, here's a picture of it, says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom kind of this futuristic question, like, Jesus, you know, someday when you enter your kingdom, remember me. And Jesus turns to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. He uses that Greek word, uh, this Greek word, paradisios. Um, and it's this Greek word that means garden, beautiful, awesome garden, like a paradise garden, running waters and and flowers, and it's been planted. So Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradisios, this, this garden. That's what the Greek word had all these connotations of garden and, and rest. And other New Te- Testament passages um, talk about being in rest. And so there's two things. And you'll be with me. So first of all, you'll be with Jesus. When you die, Christian, our hope is in you'll be with Jesus. Does that sound like purgatory to you? No, not really. So, so I, would, I would throw out the, the, the purgatory thing. And you'll be in paradise. You'll be resting in this beautiful garden. That doesn't seem like paradise. That doesn't seem like, you know, the, the Sheol, Hades. I mean, if you want to refer to it as that, at least Hades or Sheol, that's, that's a nice place. Jesus himself refers to it as a paradise. And so I'm trusting in him that it's going to be pretty cool. And uh, at this point, I want to, like, like, I was thinking about this a couple months ago when I went to India. How many of you went on mill missions this summer? Oh yeah, I see those hands. It was pretty sweet. And, and my, I got to go as a staff member to India. And here's a picture of India. If you look at this, if you've been to India, you look at this picture, you're just like, yes, of course, that's India. Trash everywhere. A cow just like eating, randomly walking around, eating the trash. It's kind of dirty. There's no way to tell how hot it is. But in the summer in India, it is hot. We were there, and it was 110 degrees in the shade. It's really, have you ever experienced that kind of heat? There's like no AC. I've experienced like Florida heat or Arizona heat. You like go outside to, to, you know, through the parking lot, and you're like, run in because they have AC inside. And so you like run through. It's like, man, it was so hot outside. Now we're in this AC. India, for the most part, doesn't have AC. <laughs> Um, it's a very poor nation. There's trash everywhere. It's dirty. And so when we went there, I was just jet lagged. It was a hard trip. It's 110 degrees. We're doing VBS. 
with these kids. There's like 300 kids in this room. We're trying to get them to sing Jesus Loves Me and Father Abraham. Can you imagine like it's 100? Okay, in this room, it was 110 outside. But in this room, the sun beating on this building without AC. I looked down at my thermometer. It was 120 degrees. That's really hot. And these kids are like, like, they just love us and we're smiling and we love to be there. We're on a mission trip. We're working. And these kids are like, grabbing us and pulling on us and like trying to get their picture and they're all like wanting attention and my friend michael child who was there he's one of the other mission trip leaders he said you know that scene in the thorn where like the tormented souls everybody's like pulling on them and there's fire everywhere it's like that's what i just experienced in the bbs that is what i think hell will be like (laughs) like literally and he just said it with like a straight face and i just kind of looked at him like oh gosh so not a good day huh (laughs) But just but but to get to give credit to the mission leaders and to the trip to India, it was it was that everyone just dug in and that we did you know we led VBS with smile and we led people to the Lord. And we have testimonies and it was so awesome and so cool. But it was a hard trip. We were jet lagged and tired. And at, at the end of that trip, we uh, the the TLS has got to visit a team in Kashmir. Kashmir is north. It's in the mountains. And I remember when we got there. There was time to relax because the teams were having their separate meetings. And so the four of us staff members, we just got to sit. And we were in this like gated, nice, rich community. And it was a garden. We were sitting in this person's like English-style garden. And it was so beautiful. It was like, okay, we could relax. And the temperature was like low, low 70s. And it just, we were in this garden. You know, Jesus referred to this resting place as a as paradise, this Greek word representing this garden. It's like that's the rest. At the end of this mission trip, that was our rest. And I think at the end of our life, our very hard life, our bodies will get old and tired. And Jesus says, you know, when you die today, you'll be with him. You'll be with Jesus. That's a good place to be. And you'll be with him in paradise. And that's a really good place to be. Let's trust in Jesus for that. And I ha- we're, we're, I'm kind of, I guess I'm running late on time, but I had some scriptures to read because I want us to be formed by scripture and our thoughts of the afterlife. So I'm just going to give you these. If you want to write them down, you can. Uh, I had quite a few, quite a bit to read that I wanted us to actually read, but I want to get to the conclusion of this. So the first one, if you want to write it down and read later, Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, paying special attention to like verses 16, the coming of the Lord, when there's going to be a trumpet call, and it says the dead in Christ will be raised first. And then the next scripture is 1 Corinthians 15. You can read that whole chapter, but I was going to specifically read verses 20 through 26, paying specific attention to verse 21, for that death came through one man, Adam, but the resurrection of the dead, that that's what we're waiting for, comes through Jesus Christ. The next scripture also in 1 Corinthians 15 is verse 50 through all the way through 54 and paying special attention to verse, verses 52 where it says, in the twinkling of the eye, the last trumpet, Jesus will come back and it says, the dead will be raised imperishable. That's our hope, that, that we will be raised, we will be resurrected. Finally, Romans 8, uh, 22 through 25, those verses Read through those, paying special attention to verse 23, that, that we are the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly, but we are awaiting the adoption of our sons, uh, of, uh, to be sons, that we will be redeemed in our bodies, the redemption of our bodies. So these are some scriptures that, that refer to, we're going to die, but our hope is then that Christ will come back for us, that, that He will raise us up. And so in conclusion... I just want to remind us this idea that Christ has conquered death. And so while, while it is easy and fun to, to make up details of heaven, like, oh, in heaven, I would like to believe blank. And you, you make up these things, and it's like, well, I would like to believe this, and I would like to believe that. And you hear these things, and it's like, what it could be like, or what it won't be like. And you hear even stories, even today with you know, the medical technologies we hear of people in cardiac arrest that actually die no heartbeat, but then are, resur- are not really resurrected, but just more resuscitated from death. And they've, maybe they've been, died a few, they've been dead a few minutes. Or, you know, like I've heard stories of children that fall through the ice and 
they're caught underneath the ice and they actually die, but they're brought to the hospital and they're resuscitated after minutes and minutes of, of actually being dead. And, and, and some of them talk about a, a light that they see. Some of them talk about, oh, I experienced this or you know, I experienced that or I heard a voice. And, and can we trust in those things? I don't know. I don't know what to think about all that. But here's what I do know. That Jesus Christ truly died. He died on a cross, not, not just for a few minutes. He wasn't kept under ice and his soul's cells preserved. Jesus truly died. He was, a, a spear was stuck into his heart and his bled out. He was nailed to a cross and he truly died and for three days sat in a tomb. And when Jesus came back, he wasn't just resuscitated. He wasn't just a ghost appearing to, to some people. He was a truly a resurrected individual. And so we, as believers, should pay very close attention to the words of Jesus about what he says the afterlife will be like. He says, you know, you'll be with him, with him, which is, first of all, really, really cool, and you'll be with him in a paradise. And so we have a lot of hope that, that we'll be with him in paradise and that ultimately we will be like him, we will be raised from the dead, that we ourselves will conquer death because of what he did, God being crucified, died truly in death, but then being resurrected from the dead. So let's pray to him. Let's thank him for the hope that we have. So Father, we, we thank you. We praise you that, that you are the first to be raised from the dead, that you died for a very long time, three days in the grave. You came back fully from that grave, not just as a resuscitated individual, not just as a ghost, but as a truly resurrected from the dead individual your and your body wasn't even there anymore your body was gone and that body was made new and made alive and so god we we have hope that that you are coming back for us to make us alive to give us this eternal life god we put our hope in you we put our trust in you the firstborn the first to be resurrected so god we praise you and love you and everybody said amen All right, everybody, you're dismissed. Peace out. We'll see you next week. Continue our afterlife discussion.